Welcome to Getting Common with Professor Carlos Chapman. Getting Common covers a variety of topics and features guests from business, law, politics, government, education, and some of the most insightful entrepreneurs. It's a refreshing, common-sense approach to some of the most important discussion points today. Now, here is your host, Carlos Chapman. Hello, everyone. I am Carlos Chapman, and I'm your host of Getting Common. In my day job, I'm an associate professor at Washington and Lee's Law School. The topic of today's episode is, does the law keep our food safe and healthy? With my guests who have written extensively about food law. I'll start by having them introduce themselves. First, Tammy. Hi, Carlos. It's good to be here with you. My name is Tammy Etheridge. I am a assistant professor at Elon University School of Law, where I teach administrative law, food and drug law, law and econ, and torts. All right, thank you for joining me. And my next guest is Emily. Hello, I am Emily Aguirre. I'm an associate professor of law at Duke Law School and a professor by courtesy at Duke's Fuqua School of Business. I teach um, business law and contracts at Duke and I research how companies pursue social and environmental goals alongside profit. So my research comes from my background in food and health systems and I continue to work with companies to think about the food and the health system and the impacts that they have on human and environmental sustainability. Now, what I like about my two guests today is that while they both have done research on on food law, um, they both do it from like a business economic perspective. And I think that's pretty unusual. Um, And so I think we'll get some insight into um, kind of the the industry of our food and, and, and the industry of our nutrition, in addition to learning about what some of the the regulations are. Um, Now, let's start with the basics. Tammy, in your paper, Where's the Beef? You highlight all the government agencies responsible for our food supply. Could you explain to the audience what happens when something we purchase in a restaurant or a grocery store goes from the farm or the factory to our table? Yeah, so I think what you're asking is a question about the supply chain. The supply chain has lots of different organizations in the process. Typically, we start with the farmer who grows the food, and then the farmer sends that food to a processor. The processor most likely will also be a packager of the food. Then the food goes on from the processor or packager to a regional distributor. And then from the regional distributor, or if we're going to expand beyond that, then to a national distributor, the food will likely go to a retail or a restaurant, what have you. And then from there, it goes to your home and your table. So for the typical grocery store item, there's no less than five steps in the supply chain. And for the average grocery item, there is approximately 1,500 miles traversed in that process, particularly in cities or large metropolitan areas where they only grow about 2% of the food that they consume. And so you start to see more of a distance in, in those areas than maybe you would if you lived in Nebraska or somewhere where there's a lot of processors. All right, and like what agencies are inspecting and regulating the food in all of these miles and all of these steps? 
Yeah, so almost every agency will have some bearing on the food process. When we think about the two big agencies, most people think about the USDA um, and the FDA. They take two very different approaches to regulation. The FDA is typically more hands-off. It does a lot of its... um, investigation and oversight whenever someone brings attention or calls to its attention an issue that's happening on the supply chain, so often by request. And that's different than the USDA, which is in every meat processing plant, for example, whenever the plant is in operation. So in that instance, there's always someone representing the agency to ensure that the guidelines are being followed and to make sure that they are constantly inspecting the food to make sure that it is safe. And what about with vegetables, right? I know that that, that they're, they're in like meatpacking plants, but, you know, is, is the USDA inspecting produce in the same way? Yeah, so there is... USDA inspection of fruits and vegetables, it is not to the level that we see in meat. And part of that is just, you know, there's a lot of places along the process where meat can become contaminated. And that is not the same with fruit and vegetables. And so while the process is similar, there's less constant oversight than you see in meat processing and packaging. All right. Now, Emily, you focused on dietary guidelines and the health issues related to food. Um, we've all seen the nutritional guidelines on labels, you know, the food pyramid, you know, all of that stuff. Where does that come from? Who puts that together? Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, so the nutritional guidelines, all the stuff that we see on the front of the pack or the back of the pack, usually the back of the pack, comes from a federal labeling law. So that's called the Nutrition Labeling and Education Act. NLEA. Just got to get the acronym right there. And that was actually recently updated um, in the last several years for the first time in over 20 years. So it got an overhaul. And you might have noticed this actually on the foods that you, uh, on, on like all the foods that you buy, that suddenly the some of the print is bolder and bigger. And there's a new line for added sugars. Uh, there's a few other things that they changed there. So that is the the basic sort of national framework for regulating the labeling and the nutrition labeling on food. And then the food pyramid is a great reference. So that was guidance from the 90s from USDA, which I think all of us on this podcast probably grew up with and learned about in school, the food pyramid. And they've they've since replaced that with something called my plate. So we grew up with the food pyramid. Um, Kids today grew up learning about my plate instead, if they're still talking about these things in schools, which I think they are. So that's just a visual depiction of a plate. And it's sort of divided up with how it should be filled with vegetables and grains and proteins and fruits. And then there's a a little cup on the side for dairy. So it's supposed to give this visual depiction of the proportion that you're supposed to be eating the food. So that's supposed to be, I guess, an improvement on the food pyramid that updates when we update nutrition science, theoretically. And like, who influences the nutrition science? Because like, I remember when we were kids, and I'm older than y'all, but I think we probably had the same pyramid. You know, there was the scandal about you know, the grain producers and their like lobbying influence on the USDA. And that's why they were telling us to eat so much like cereal. Um, So is that still happening or are industries still able to like influence what we're told to eat? 
Yeah, I mean, absolutely. So there's a there's a great council, DGAC, the Dietary Guidelines Advisory Council, and they are the ones that are um, advising on the dietary guidelines, which are are updated every five years. And um, and they're supposed to they're experts in nutrition science. They're supposed to sort of give the best updated um, advice on what the dietary guidelines should look like and how they should be updated. But of course, lots of people's perspectives um, get to come into the final dietary guidelines, and that includes industry perspectives. So that, so for example, I think one thing we might talk about later um, in terms of dietary guidelines is red and processed meat. So we don't actually have a red and processed meat um, guideline. It's been talked about, but we don't have one here. Lots of other countries in the world do. There's global guidelines for how much red and processed meat you should have. Um, but that's not something that we've sort of been able to agree on from a nutrition health science perspective in this country. And so it hasn't made it into our guidelines yet. Similarly, there's recently been a push for sustainability. Should those be in our dietary guidelines? You know, should we be taking into account the environmental footprint of the foods that we're eating when we are telling people what to eat on a daily basis? So far, that hasn't had traction here. Other places in the world that is starting to have traction. And I think, it will only continue to be more so the case in this country as we continue to grapple with climate change and the need for environmental sustainability in our food supply and, and things like overfishing. I mean, it extends beyond just carbon footprint. There's a whole ton of environmental sustainability considerations that we need to take into account when we think about dietary guidelines at this huge population level. We're, we're trying to influence what a, a huge population of people are eating, and that has systemic effects on population health, on the environment, uh, both of these things, and on industries and on economic considerations too. The other thing I want to ask you, oh, go ahead, Tammy. I was just going to say, when you're talking about the role of industry in nutritional health, the first thing that comes to me, my mind is the meat and dairy lobby, right? We know, for example, that dairy has maintained such an important role in the U.S. because the government has basically sanctioned the value of milk. You think about the Got Milk ads and all of that, and over time we say we give it to the babies and whatever, even though all of the science suggests that we don't need milk or certainly not at the volume that we consume it. And people think like, oh, well, we're drinking less and less milk, but we're also getting much more dairy in other areas. And so if you're thinking about lobbies that have been effective in changing our food goals, I think the dairy lobby has done an amazing job because for every decrease in ounce of milk, people are increasing almost double, I think, over the past 20 years in cheese consumption and ice cream consumption and dairy and other forms. So they've been really creative in maintaining their prominence. You know, it, it reminds me of that Oprah suit. Do, do, do y'all remember the Oprah lawsuit when, you know, she had an episode about red meat being bad for you? Mm. Um, and this is when she met Dr. Phil, basically. Like, they sued her for saying on the Oprah Winfrey show that red meat is bad for you and that you should eat chicken instead. And, like, the cow lobby sued her. I, she might have. I, I, I think they might have won or there might have been a settlement. But, you know, I, I can't think of anyone else who sued Oprah you know, other than the cow lobby, right? Like, and, you know, because how dare you say red meat is unhealthy? You know, uh, Tammy's comment, you know, kind of segues to my next question. And, and what I always think about 
like I think about food trends and what we eat and I think about what's considered healthy, right? So I think about stuff like the quinoa trend where everyone was like, oh my God, replace rice with quinoa or like eat a berries or all these random weird things um, that we all decide are super healthy. Like, you know, kombucha, all of a sudden everyone's drinking that. Is there someone out there who's checking up when someone declares some new food to be super healthy for us in a superfood? So the superfood trend is the craze is, is great, right? It's blueberries today and acai tomorrow and ashkawanda the next day. And, um, it's exciting to think of what new thing we will, we will next get to be a superfood. Uh, superfood is not a regulated term, by the way. The answer to your question is, is sort of, I guess, but from my view, not really. So, there are certain terms that are fed- that are federally regulated. Healthy is technically one of them, as opposed to something like natural, which actually uh, FDA does not regulate. USDA only lightly regulates. So we see natural on a food product that really is not telling you much at all about the product. Organic, that's a federally regulated term that actually has um, certain requirements and specific meanings. So there's a lot of words that are federally regulated. FDA defines healthy as meaning basically that a food has high nutritional value. So it's not super helpful because what that means is up for debate. And until recently, um, there's been a lot of sort of recent buzz because low fat has been considered healthy and fat is now having more of a heyday. And so, you know, using this old definition of healthy and high nutritional value, something like a low fat pudding might count as healthy and might get to take the claim healthy. Whereas something that was high fat, like salmon or nuts or avocado wouldn't get to have that claim on it. So that's, there's been a lot of buzz over the last several years about how do we redefine healthy to meet current nutrition science? And again, who has influence, which lobbies have influence over that. And there's one other thing I want to mention there, which is um, there's also this thing called standards of identity. And that's the requirements of what a food has to contain in order to have a certain label. So in order to be marketed as a certain kind of food, And there's over 250 of those standards of identity. So for example, if you want to call something ketchup or uh, peanut butter or milk, it has to be made in a certain way that FDA determines and regulates. And you have to go look up the definition in order to put that label on your food. And so that way, the consumer knows that they're they're getting the right product, basically. And usually that's pretty uncontroversial. But I mention it here because with food technology, that's actually raising some, some issues. So, you know, we were just talking about dairy and that's a real hot button issue there. Do manufacturers of plant-based milks like almond milk and oat milk, do they get to use the term milk on their products? Technically, milk is a federally regulated term. It means lacteal secretion, I'm summarizing, but it's a lacteal secretion from cows, basically. So if you're making milk from almonds or oats, you're not technically allowed under the FDA standard of identity to call it milk. And then states have also their own regulations on some of these things. So lots of stuff like that has raised a lot of issues um, in addition to the healthy issue over the last several years. You know, what do we do about updating our understanding of what healthy means? And then also, what do we do with food technology as we change our understanding of what different terms mean? How does that evolve over time? So how are they able to put almond milk, rice milk, you know, oat milk on the label if it's not technically, 
or even like muscle milk. I think of all these things that have milk yeah. on the label. Yeah. So, uh, so muscle milk actually might be a vitamin supplement, uh, which is a totally different set of regulations, which is a whole other podcast. If you want to get into the vitamin supplement <laughs> stuff, or lack thereof. That, talk about that. Yeah. <laughs> um, so you might see a lot of places they spell milk with a Y or they, oh. they call it. So in Europe, they call it drink. Uh, they do actually, they call it oat based drink or, almond based drink. They they've actually been pretty strict there about enforcing milk. And I think my understanding here is that FDA has sort of so far had a sort of detente about not enforcing this technical term. Um, But in California, there was a a case, uh, Miyoko's Kitchen is a vegan um, or plant-based, they might be calling themselves plant-based now, um, plant-based dairy producer. And they ran into an issue with the California Department of Agriculture about um, calling themselves dairy products and not having the sorts of facilities that a dairy product would need, but they don't need them because they don't have cows coming through. And so they they filed a lawsuit, uh, a First Amendment claim, I believe it was, about whether they could put cheese and dairy and these things on their labels um, because they were getting these letters from the state trying to say that they couldn't. So even if FDA isn't hugely active in this space, there's still risk there and there's a lot of state level risk potentially. So this is still playing out how how these terms are going to be uh, regulated and enforced. But I think with milk, especially, they've been litigating these issues for decades now. And so it's not, there doesn't appear to be movement or I'm not sure that there's going to be a national push in any one direction, in part because the government has kind of ceded its interest in this debate. You do see progress more in like meat, for example, right? Where people are really pushing that from the carcass of an animal definition in a way that while we've seen the dairy lobby try historically, it hasn't been as successful. And I also think Emily's comments bring to mind like consumer perspective, because part of this is whether or not consumers either know or if they do, to what extent they care. So Breyers makes lots of non-ice cream products they have for a very long time. And they just call them, it's like cool dessert or dessert treat or something. I don't buy Breyers because I know it's not ice cream, but whatever is on the carton it's not ice cream. And so like, I'm not sure that the average consumer is aware to say, well, I'm just going to avoid this almost ice cream and instead buy this Nestle Toll House or whatever. Yeah. There's a real consumer confusion issue here because when I see almond drink, I assume it's not almond milk or if I see drink, I'm, I'm confused by that. So there's, it's interesting because there's a tension there with um, industry players also not wanting their consumers to be confused, right? They want them to to know from their products. And a lot of dairy companies have diversified into plant-based. So they are starting to change their portfolios so that they now have more of an interest and and there's sort of less pressure uh, in some ways for some companies to be, to be really fighting this milk fight. Uh, instead, they've diversified into these areas, they've acquired companies or they've started innovating and they don't want consumers to be confused 
by almond drink or oat drink or rice drink, whatever, you know, whatever that term might mean. Pea milk. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I just know I need it to be in the dairy counter, right? Like if it's in the box on the show, I don't think of that as milk, but if it's, I need it to be in the bottle in the dairy counter, I, you know, when I, I get the, I get the ripple pea milk as well. Like I need it to be where milk would be because I'm substituting milk and I want it there. Um, right. so well, and so, this yeah. is beyond meats. This is beyond meats thing. They want to be in the meat case. They have always said, don't put us in with the meat alternatives. We want to be there with the meat because even though we don't come from animal carcass, we are the same sort of nutritional content and composition as meat. So put us in the meat case. That has been a big push of theirs from the beginning as they want consumers to see them as real meat. And they're, you know, compositionally, they say this is meat. So we should be there in the case. And they've, you know, they've largely had some success in being put near meat in, in most grocery stores, I would say. So, you know, kudos to their marketing, whether people think they're meat or not. Well, that's now we're getting into philosophical questions too, about what is meat. (laughs) I definitely don't think about beyond as meat. Like I, I just... Yeah. And I've, and you're right. I've seen it. Like, it'll be like, you know, grass fed beef, bison, venison, beyond. 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 And it's like, what? Like, <laughs> put that on the vegan counter over there. Like, what is this doing over here? You're Carlos crushing the beyond meat people right now. You're crushing them. <laughs> I was going to say, I think of cell cultured meat as more meat than beyond meat because at least it goes through the same like technical processes. But even then, it's probably a reach for me. And I wonder how much the average consumer knows about the different processes. Yeah. I would guess not much. I would guess that too. No, not at all. Well, this is a good segue to our next topic. Um, and one of the more interesting things about all of your work is how both of you take regulations and apply them to reality. Um, so let's start with Emily's article. In your article, How Supportive is the Global Food Supply and Food-Based Dietary Guidelines? A Descriptive Time Series Analysis of Food Supply Alignment from 1961 to 2013. What I appreciate is how you and your co-authors compare what governments recommend to what is actually available in the food supply. And in looking at 50 years of data, what did you and your co-authors find? So this was a really fun project. This actually came from a conversation that a colleague and I were having one day about dietary guidelines. And we just started sort of spitballing and wondering what would happen if everyone in a country complied with their country's dietary guidelines? Would the food supply have enough food to feed everyone? Would it have too much? Like how aligned are food supplies to dietary guidelines. And so we have these national and global dietary guidelines. We're all supposed to follow them, but sort of what kind of structural support and alignment is there actually for these recommendations? And so we went and we we found the data, um, FAO, the Food and Agriculture Organization data. We ran the study. We were able to get the data for 89 different countries. And the answer, which which maybe is unsurprising, uh, since we're here talking about these things, is that it's not very well aligned. Sort of that's I, I guess that's the punchline takeaway. It's not very well aligned, and that differs globally for the ways that it's not very well aligned. Um, but also that misalignment was improved, but pretty consistent across five decades of data, which was also relatively notable. So. Our our takeaway there, and so I, I guess I'll say that in North America, essentially we have basically three times as much sugar in the food supply as are recommended in our own dietary guidelines. 
So three X the amount. So if we all ate the right amount, the right, you know, the amount that's sort of in our guidelines, um, we all ate the recommended amount of sugar. We would have three times as much sugar in the food supply as we need. Uh, red and processed meat, as I mentioned, we don't have a guideline on, but if we use the global guideline on that, we have about, I think it was two times, uh, yeah, two times as much red and processed meat in our food supply. So, you know, we have one arm of the government that's telling us these dietary guidelines that we're supposed to comply with. And then we have other pieces of the government responsible for subsidies and the food supply and imports and exports that are creating a food supply that's really not in alignment with those dietary guidelines. Um, the good news is fruit and vegetables are closer aligned. So we actually do have enough fruit and vegetables for everyone to eat the right amount. Europe was relatively similar. Uh, they do a bit better in terms of sugar, but they still have way more sugar and red and processed meat than their dietary guidelines and uh, global dietary guidelines recommend. And then the last thing, I guess two, two more sort of big top level takeaways. Compare that to East Asia and the Pacific, where the food supply is much closer to perfect alignment. It was actually really fascinating to see. They do have more red and processed meat in their food supply than is recommended, but their fruit and vegetables and their sugar numbers are pretty much right on the money there. So in East Asia, if everyone's eating the recommended sugar and fruit and vegetable um, each day, they'd have close to just the right amount to go around. And, uh, and in some cases, maybe not even enough sugar to go around. Compare wow. that to here, where if we ate all the amount that was recommended, we'd have three times as much sugar left over. So it's, it's kind of incredible that they've managed to align their food supply so well, or, or maybe actually it's kind of incredible that we haven't, I guess. Um, and the one other thing that I want to mention, because I think it's really important from an equity perspective, is that we also saw that lower income countries still don't have enough supply of fruits and vegetables, which is really concerning from a nutritional health perspective and distributional effects globally. So when I say that we found that the food supply has been misaligned, um, it is misaligned in different ways around the world. And I don't want us to forget lower income countries where there's still not enough of these uh, really important foods in the food supply. Emily, how much of the sugar problem do you think is attributable to corn and corn syrup and all of the products that we, given the volume of corn that we grow, we have to find things to do with it because we've subsidized a lot of farmers to grow it. And so much of our non-edible corn goes to corn syrup, right? Yeah. So sugar in this, in, in our country comes from a few different sources. One of them is high fructose corn syrup. And then we also have sugar beets and uh, sugar cane. We don't really grow so much sugar cane here. We do grow sugar beets. Um, but, you know, there's, we, we oversupply, we overgrow and probably over import too. I'd have to look at the import numbers more recently, but we certainly oversupply sugar. And it really raises the question about the commodity crops that we are supporting. You know, what, what do we want to um, support and grow and import? to the country and what sort of doesn't serve us from a nutritional health perspective. And, and I think also how hard is it going to be or how much harder are we making it on ourselves to get people to comply with dietary guidelines when we have a system that's really saturated with the stuff that we're also telling them not to eat. So it's really challenging to tell someone to behave in a certain way 
and then to surround them with all of the things that you're telling them not to do. I mean, that's it's kind of a recipe, I guess, pun intended. It wasn't, but I'll take it <laughs> for disaster there that we're not setting people up for success if we're creating a system that isn't helping people to act in the way that we are sort of imploring them to act. I'm wondering if within countries, um, like I think about Europe and the U.S. particularly, um, are there economic and racial implications behind who's eating the excess of sugar? Um, Because I would think, you know, I would feel like people who live in a food desert, probably even though enough fruit and vegetables are available for the population en masse, I would think they're probably eating a disproportionate amount of sugar, maybe even more than 3x, whereas wealthy people may be eating way, way more vegetables, even more than their share of fruits and vegetables. Yeah, absolutely. I think one thing that's really important to take away from this is that this is supply at the country level, but then the distributional effects from there are not evenly proportionately borne across all members of society. So if we say we have three times as much sugar in the food supply, and this data is a little bit outdated, so it may be different now, but but I imagine it's not that uh, different. Mm-hmm. Um, that is disproportionately going to be borne by marginalized populations, by poor populations, by racial and ethnic minorities, um, That such that the numbers will probably look a lot worse in that, in that sort of food environment uh, sort of way. Um, so, so the distributional effects of this are even, I think, more exacerbated when you consider not only that we have too much probably from a population from a sort of national perspective, but then who's actually bearing the brunt of that looks even worse when you break down those numbers and you look at where all of these foods are going and who's eating them and who's being marketed them, quite frankly. Mm-hmm. So I've thought about this some, and I blame, I have an article that talks about how the problem is this like mission conflict, right? Especially in the USDA, where we've asked them to protect the health of the citizens, but we've also asked them to continue to support farmers because as a nation, we value farmers. And so in doing that, they've kind of propped up these commodity crops in a way that maybe we shouldn't continue to do because it comes at the cost of citizen health, right? Like we know the implications of the excess meat, the excess sugar, the excess dairy, and we know it's bad for health, but we continue to support those farmers just because we started as an agrarian culture, if nothing else. Yeah. That's an interesting perspective. Go ahead, Emily. I just wanted to add one thing, which is um, it's also really important to remember that we do, we need, we actually really need government intervention in growing the food supply because this is a really volatile sector. So this is, it's important for us because we have to eat. Um, It's also a matter of national security. You know, only if you are self-sufficient in your food, can you be sort of secure? It's, It's not a surprise that our agricultural policies in Europe and in the U.S. were World War II, post World War II, um, policies in Europe, they, they made it common. They made a common agricultural policy. They thought if we tie our food supplies together, then we maybe will be at less risk of going to war. And here we thought, you know, it's really important. One, one important thing is for us to uh, make sure that we always have a steady food supply. So it's, so I, I don't, you know, I think 
an, an easy thing for people to say is, oh, we should just not, you know, we, sh- we shouldn't subsidize anything. That's unrealistic. It's not when there's bad crop years, we need help. When there's good crop years, we need help with the oversupply. Commodity prices are really volatile. It's It can be really hard to make a living as a farmer. And so, you know, I don't want to throw farmers under the bus because this is a really hard way of life. This is not an easy proposition. And it's it's really hard to make ends meet as a farmer. It's really challenging. So how do we make a thoughtful policy that ensures that we have a good food supply that's healthy, that is consistent, that can ensure safety as a country, that helps us to um, support people that are growing the food while also being fair and, um, and, and sort of good for us from both an environmental and a nutritional perspective. So there's just a ton of values at play here that I want to be sort of fair to all of them um, to make sure that, you know, everyone's kind of understanding a lot of the, the different pieces at play. You know, I'd love to, I, I wonder how much does factory farming and kind of corporate farming contribute to this excessive amount of sugar and this, this unbalance, because, you know, if I were running a farm corporation, I'm going to grow the most subsidized crop that earns the most cash. I'm not going to grow kale, right? Like kale is not subsidized. Um, So how much does that come into play with this, this disproportion? Yeah, I think quite a bit. Tammy, did you want to no, I was just, I was going to say the same thing. I was going to say it's a fairly significant and we'll, we even in other areas. So we are all associated in some way with North Carolina, right? What we've seen a lot on the coast is that um, Chinese corporations are starting to even buy like the hog farms. And so we start to see this national security issue come into play, even in addition to the business and economic implications, right? It does make sense for corporate farmers to engage in crops that they know are assured, right? A certain level of income. And so I think that is absolutely a critical concern when we're thinking about who decides what to grow. My fun North Carolina fact that I learned when I started at Duke is that in North Carolina, there are always more pigs than people. <laughs> we love our pigs. We you sure do, do love our- your pigs. I got yeah. served so much pork when I was, I was like, Jesus, <laughs> do they eat anything other than pork here? Like so many different varieties of pork. Um, this is a good segue into Tammy's paper, right? So, and I think it's interesting to weave your work together because, um, you have this paper about cell cultured meat. Where's the beef? Mm -hmm. And first I want you to explain to people what is cell cultured meat and what are the plans for it in our food supply? Well, it's supposed to save us from all of our ales, all of them. (laughs) It's our godsend. Cell cultured meat is meat that is grown, if you will, in a lab on scaffolding. It starts with cells that are biopsied from a living animal, typically a cow. That's where we've seen the greatest growth in the industry. And so in an ideal world, right, that biopsied goat cells go into a Petri dish of sorts And there is a liquid, like a nutrient-rich liquid that it grows on scaffolding in. So it starts to take the shape of a meat. And the argument is that 
this cell cultured or lab grown meat, if you will, is technically meat because it originates from an animal. If not the carcass, then certainly an animal. Um, and it is indistinguishable, not in the same way as beyond meat, but at, from actual meat, like it is meat, if you will. The problem with that perspective, in which you hear a lot, <laughs> is that it's not quite that simple. So I spend a lot of time with um, the scientists in Nebraska and different places who are working on these projects. And when it when the meat or the product, if you will, grows on the scaffolding, it doesn't have fat, it doesn't have vitamins, it doesn't have minerals, it grows like a yellow tinted gray, right? Mm -hmm. So they add nutrients, they add fat, they add color, they add to make it look like meat. It is not as palatable naturally. And there are still processes and natural occurring meat that we haven't been able to replicate, right? So there's something about the texture and the consistency that happens from in between killing an animal and letting the meat rest before you eat it, that isn't quite replicable yet. That's why you'll see a lot more cell cultured ground beef or what have you, than you will a mm. steak, right? Like the science hasn't gotten there yet. Um, and in an ideal world, this product will take off because, you know, there's an assumption that it will certainly lessen global warming, if nothing else. We know that uh, cattle are a large part of global warming. Um, there's an argument that once we get the science down, it will be cheaper. So everyone around the world can have access, ready access to meat. I'm not sure if everyone thinks that's a good idea, right? But that's part <laughs> of the theory. So we'll decrease global warming, we'll get everyone meat, and we won't have these questions about um, animal rights and animal quality of life on these farms, right? Those are the big things that are supposed to happen. The problem is that it is a very, very expensive process. The first hamburger that they made was $10,000, I think. So it's come down a lot, but it's still in the multiple hundreds, right? So it's not at a place where consumers can readily purchase it and replace their other meat <laughs> in the refrigerator. Hopefully that happens soon, but we're just not there yet. So is the idea too that like, you know, one, I get the global warming implications, but you know, you could make healthier meat, right? Like you can make the beef with less fat. You can you know, make it with no saturated fat. Like you can give people the beef that they want, but a healthier form of beef. Yeah, certainly there's that. And I think because we control, right? Because that stuff is not naturally occurring. There are no tendons in it. There are no what, what have you. So we put all of that stuff in. And so, yes, you can have model meat, if you will. I'm not sure... I don't know, that would raise some like ethical concerns for me because that is almost deceptive. That's my immediate response. Like, why isn't that deceptive to the consumer, right? Who, if you are just Joe Schmo in Texas and you are committed to like, you are your carcass grown steak 
And the only way that someone can convince you off of it is to persuade you that this is the exact same. I feel like we'd be doing a disservice by changing it without announcing those changes. And then I think announcing the changes would kind of trigger that Frankenmeat association that people naturally have. Lots of people are repulsed by the idea in general. And so I think if you were the company, you'd have to walk that line very carefully. So is any of this cell cultured meat like anywhere in the food supply yet? So not in the U.S. presently. They keep saying this year, this year, this year. So maybe (laughs) this year is the year. It'll just be November (laughs) or December. I'm guessing not. Um, In places like Israel and Singapore, you have seen, I think, fish and chicken nuggets, things that are less associated with like the firm texture that we associate with beef. So, so what's the difference between the cell cultured meat and like a Beyond Burger? Yeah, so Beyond Burger, I think is <laughs> it's different in that I want to say that it's not actual meat, but that seems very unpolitic, <laughs> right? It's it's kind of like a mix of different textures that often come from plants that is then fortified, right? And so it's it's not like a veggie patty of old, but it's a more sophisticated version of that. Now, I find all this fascinating. Like I, I cannot bring myself to eat a Beyond Burger. I, hopefully they don't sue me, but I can't, I just, again, I'm also a Texan. So I'm that person right. who's like, I want my carcass Right. Like if Give I me want the tendon meat. and the fat and everything I associate. Like I don't <laughs> want a fat-free brisket. That just sounds sad. Yeah. And like how am I supposed to cook it? Like what am I supposed to do with it? I don't I don't know. Whereas like, I love it, it's beyond, awesome. I love beyond and impossible. Um so you know, and I I am not a, a meat eater for various reasons. So I love that this is so easy to cook and solves a lot of issues that I can enjoy something that is plant-based meat. Do you, you find that the before? texture? Oops, sorry. <laughs> I was just, just going to ask if you find that the texture is different to cook with, or if you have not cooked with meat in so long that, you know, for you, it's not noticeable. Yeah. So yes, I grew up eating meat. Definitely. Um, I, so the patties themselves are really easy. You just put them on and just flip them every couple of minutes. Um, so that's kind of, I think I've noticed it takes longer to, and also my husband is a big meat eater. So, uh, (laughs) there's a lot of meat prepared in this home still. Um, so I am not divorced from meat, uh, by any means I have, I think I found that beyond meat, I tend to, it tends to take longer, I guess, to cook. Uh, maybe that's just me. But, um, you know, if you get their ground meat and you make it into meatballs, that feels very similar to me to handling meat. Their sausages are very sausage-like. It actually is somewhat concerning because I've had it in restaurants sometimes, and I've been concerned that they've given me real sort of carcass meat and not the Beyond Burger. And I've had to say, like, is this really (laughs) Beyond Burger? Because I think you may have given me the, the sort of meat one. Um, so sometimes it fools me like too much to where I'm, 
a little bit disconcerted that it tastes so much like meat that I, it, it throws me off a little bit. Do well, you worry? Sorry. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Will your husband eat it? <laughs> yeah, he will. He will. Uh, I will, uh, I might be misrepresenting his views, but I think that he will. <laughs> Are they interchangeable to him? No. I don't think he would say they're interchangeable at all. Yeah, this I, is this is hard for me. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, it it actually raises a really big like great bigger point, which is that meat consumption is not just about the environment or health or ethics. It's also about culture. It's about what what we associate, the values that we associate with what we eat. It's about what food means to us, what we grew up with. Um how we, it, it, it's part of our identity. The, you know, food is fellowship. We sit around and we eat and drink together because that's how we connect as human beings. And so it's, when we think about how we want to evolve the food supply or health of food or the environmental sustainability of food, we can't ignore the fact that people have cultural and, and personal identity value associations with food that are really meaningful. And you can't just fix these sorts of issues by coming up with a plant-based version or a cell-based version, a cell-cultured version. You know, you have to speak to people's cultures and identities and, and make these sorts of, uh, whether it's a federal guideline or program, make them culturally competent and culturally sensitive, whether it's a food company that's marketing this or coming up with these things. You have to really think about the fact that these are deep, deeply held personal identities with food. I mean, my family still talks about the day that my grandma stopped using lard to make frijoles, to make beans. Like that's like a, that was a big moment because it couldn't possibly taste as good. We still haven't moved off that for tamales for <laughs> like, you know, getting the lard out of the tamales. It's like, it just doesn't taste as good. We'll just live another day to fight a different battle, you know, whatever. But those are, those are culturally linked too. There's no Christmas without tamales. Like it's, you have to you have to meet people where they are as well. I'd be curious to know how you guys weigh between like part of this health push in food and law, what have you, is to eat more cleanly, eat less processed food, because part of the problem with the sugar is the volume of processed food we eat. And so if you think about the beyond meat, that is the definition of processed food, right? There are many, mm -hmm. many processes there. And so I think what we're going to have to reconcile as a nation is what health looks like going forward and which of those movements we are prepared to advocate for. Because if we're advocating for uh, a vegetable forward lifestyle, then perhaps, you know, we should all move towards beyond meat. But what are the ramifications of like completely substituting our carcass grown meat with the extra processes associated with either lab-grown meat or beyond meat or any of the other meat substitutes. Yeah, and I think one one reaction to that also is that it's it's kind of it's not kind of it's impossible to be a moral maximizer when it comes to food because you're it's either grown you know if it's grown locally it's unhealthy for you or it has a a bad sort of pesticide footprint if it's mm -hmm. good for you they're blueberries but they're from overseas and they were flown 
really <laughs> way. If it's the lamb that's grass fed from New Zealand, it has to come from New Zealand. There's no, unless you are committed to homesteading and just growing everything in your backyard and sort of like seasonally going with the flow, it, you're making trade-offs here. Yeah. So there's just no way to do this perfectly. And we have to kind of be honest with ourselves about the values that we're willing to trade off. And, um, you know, not all processing is, is, the same. Cutting food is technically mm -hmm. processing food. That's okay. You know, what about processing do we not like? How do we get more precise about the behaviors that we want to promote and the ones that we could do without or we could do with less of? And how do we take incremental steps? We're not overhauling all of our behaviors overnight. Like, it's just, let's be honest with ourselves. We're not, most of us are not going to be drastically changing our behaviors. So how do we get people to take steps in the right direction that if we add it up at a population level can make a real difference? You know, how do we pull in the same direction, basically, I think is an important way of asking the question. Mm -hmm. It makes me think about the class implications because, you know, my friends I know who say I, I don't eat processed food and I like shop the perimeter of the grocery store mm -hmm. will eat every, you know, beyond me tofu processed mm -hmm. this or that. And they won't eat like the Cheetos and the box of, you know, of, of cake mix or whatever. Cause in their mind, you know, process is the stuff in the center of the store. That's, that's like a dollar and comes in a can mm -hmm. and everything that's in the perimeter, even the beyond meat and the weird, you know, fake meat things, those are totally okay. Um, because they're like health food. And so I think we have to think about, you know, the, the class-based implications of the way we even talk about it and what we're signaling. Um, you know, when we, when we declare something healthy and therefore unprocessed versus over-processed and unhealthy. Mm -hmm. Right. So I think the goal is not to be regressive, right? Like in any <laughs> instance, if we cannot harm poor people, that should always be the goal we lead with. And it's hard because those foods, they're cheap, right? And people in food deserts can get them because they're shelf stable. When you mentioned early on about like liking all of the milk, but the shelf stable milk, I thought, but man, <laughs> that shelf stable milk when I lived in Europe got us through sometimes, right? Like worst come to worst in the cabinet, we always had milk. And so yeah. we have to figure out how to reconcile that and perhaps we just support more like green spaces in urban areas. So then your fruits and your vegetables don't have to travel the 1500 miles, right? Or maybe there are small efforts like that that we could take or that culturally we could say we now value X amount of green space per city or what have you. Are there thoughts that the technology can fix this, right? Like, are there thoughts that we can you know, if we get cell cultured meat to replace protein and we can make it both cell cultured and shelf stable, um, that this is something that can make up for these nutritional gaps um, that are in food deserts or in low income countries. So all the technology conversation that I've seen, Emily might know otherwise, has been focused on the supply chain, right? So cellular agriculture has been kind of a niche like there are people with cash and there are startups and they're trying to make cellular agriculture happen, but it's very much giving mean girls, like you know, <laughs> maybe we can't make fetch happen, right? Like we're still just hopeful. 
So most of the literature I've seen that's been really productive has been about like how to shorten the supply chain. And I'm not sure that that's the right solution, but I think that's where a lot of um, efforts are focused at this time. I think it comes back also to, um, yes, there is, there are access issues, but we also need to be more expansive about what access means. So there's physical access and we've mentioned food deserts, but a lot of the research has shown that that may actually not be the biggest sort of barrier to a lot of adoption of these economic access, meaning the cost of things is a big barrier. Um, there's a ton of new research on stress that having time poverty and stress actually make you process food differently. So even if mm-hmm. you know people will will process the same types of foods in a stressed out body differently than in an unstressed body. And so, you know, these are really important uh, pieces to keep in mind also when when we feel sort of uh, like we can solve everything with technology or like everything is about individual responsibility. There's a lot broader things going on as well that we need to address too. Wow. Well, we only have a few minutes. I know. I was like, I was like, wait, it makes me think about my own, like, what am I eating and my stress levels, right? Well, we only have a few minutes left. So I'd like to talk a little bit about what the future holds. And Tammy, I'll let you go first on this one. What do you think the future holds for our food supply? Where are we going? My hope is that we are entering a fourth wave of agriculture. Um, We know that that is going to have to happen soon in one form or another, and that as a result of this new agricultural wave, everyone will have access, if nothing else, to fresh fruit and vegetables. I think it's possible. I think we, we have the initiative and the science, and as Emily's research has shown, it's quite possible if we just change our priorities. All right. Now, Emily, what do you propose for bridging this gap we have between what we know are nutritional needs and our shortfalls in the the food supply? I think we want to think more creatively about the roles that the consumer and government and and business commercial um, industry are playing. And so we've thought a lot about the consumer. I would say maybe even ad nauseum and individual responsibility. That's an important piece. That's great. We think a lot about government roles and programs. We could probably do more and go further there. But where I think it's really exciting to focus our attention is what's the role here for the commercial food industry? So pragmatically, you know, it's something that we need. It's a it's a necessary thing. But how do we get the commercial food industry, which we need and we like and we want the luxury of, to pull in the same direction as human and environmental health and sustainability? And and that's what a lot of my research focuses on. How do companies successfully pursue these multiple objectives, social, financial, environmental? Um, how can we get them pulling in the same direction as, as human and, and environmental health? The business law professor in me says it has to be, you have to find a way to make it profitable, right? So how do we make this more profitable. And I guess if we collectively figure that out, we'll probably get a Nobel prize. Right. There you go. Right. That's our project. Like that's our right. next group paper. Like yeah. how do we make healthy, nutritious food profitable? Right. Yeah. I don't know, but you know, another conversation for another day. Absolutely. All right. Well, thank you both for joining me on the show today. Um, If you ever miss an episode of Getting Common, you can catch the rebroadcast anywhere podcasts are played, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and on the Voice America website. 
We also have a YouTube channel that uh, reshows these videos. Feel free to send me emails to the show page or reach out on social media. I'm at Carla C on all platforms, and I'll give each of you a moment to plug papers, projects. You know, what do you have going on that you need people to download? I'll start with you, Emily. Ooh, um, so you can follow me on Twitter, where I'm not very prolific, I would say, but at EK Aguirre on Twitter. I may have actually even just given the wrong handle. I think it actually, so maybe don't follow. It's fine. It's fine. <laughs> you don't need to follow me on Twitter. Uh, just follow me on this podcast. Um, but yeah, look, there's some more stuff I have coming out about uh, all of this social environmental stuff in companies. So and she's on SSRN and she's on the Duke Law website. Thank you. So to, to read for better her papers, <laughs> yes, <laughs> download all the things. All right, Tammy, how can we find you and your work? I am available on the Elon website. I am currently and happily taking any thoughts about agriculture and antitrust. I'm also working on consumer options as shareholders to help move corporations into this direction we've been talking about. Awesome. Um, these are both some of my favorite junior people. So please go follow them, download their work, um, you know, support them. It's very important to support great junior scholars and also to cite them properly. Don't just copy paste, <laughs> drop a good note. <laughs> right. All right. Thank you all for tuning in. I will see y'all next week. Thank you for tuning in to Getting Common with Professor Carlos Chapman. Please join us again next Wednesday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel for another thoughtful discussion.